Hey, this is Dylan Collins from Super Awesome. I think you're going to really enjoy today's show with Nick Walters from Hopster. It was extremely lively and colorful indeed. Just a reminder that you can find the Kid Tech Podcast on Spotify, on iTunes, on SoundCloud. In fact, basically anywhere that you listen to podcasts. It's always free. All we ask is that you just tell somebody about it who you think might like it. Now. On to the show. Welcome to Kid Tech, the podcast series about the people and companies shaping the kids' digital media sector. Today I'm with Nick Walters, who's founder and CEO of Hopster, the global play and learning platform for preschool kids. Hopster is now available in multiple languages, um, about 100 countries. About 100 countries. Um, and is the still the top grossing kids app in the UK as well? On average, yep, changes a bit day to day, but most of the time we are in we are the number one grossing app for kids in the UK. And you don't like SVOD. I do like SVOD. Oh, you do like SVOD, but I know as a big name. As a name. So I like the S and I like the OD. We think video is sort of a video is one component of what we do, but we're a we're a play and learning platform. So we do video, we do games, we do books, and we do music. So we're a sort of subscription content on demand. We're but S COD sounds silly. S COD. We'll come back to amazing acronyms a little later on. Prior to Hopster, you were in Viacom. How did you go from that great media empire to Hopster? You walk us through. Yeah, I mean, I was I spent six years at Viacom, so I started out there uh, running strategy and business development for their emerging markets group, uh, then ended up running the Russia business. Um, but I guess kind of from a personal point of view, six years in a corporate is a good amount of time to spend in a corporate. Uh, I'd ended up like running a territory and doing the P&L thing, so that was, I'd achieved a lot of what I wanted to at corporate. Um, but also just thought if, if you work in the media business, one of the things that you should be really alive to, I think, is the is like a change in the distribution landscape. Like, if the fundamental like tectonic plates um, are shifting, that's a really big time in media. You saw it happen with the shift to pay TV in kind of the late eighties, nineties, um, and it really fell in like two thousand ten, two thousand eleven, two thousand twelve. You could see those tectonic plates shifting. Um, it was really clear from the inside at Viacom that the big corporates were not going to be in a position to take advantage of that quickly. Mm. Uh, and it just felt like a really interesting time to go out and try and uh, try and create something new. So, I mean, let's talk about Hopster's business model. So can you explain, you know, how it works, how you make money, what the general economics are, you know, for, for everything? Because it's, it's also evolved over, you know, the last few years since you started it too, right? Yeah, I, I think it, it has a bit, or it's grow, certainly grown. I think like, probably one of the most important things for people to understand about Hopster is we are, we're a pretty specific platform. So we're a very mission-driven platform. So when we talk about Hopster, we say what we want to do is we want to help kids learn through the stories they love. Uh, so we are, you know, we're not trying to be a generalist entertainment platform. We're not trying to be um, a you know direct competitor to some of the other entertainment platforms out there. We are very specifically about organizing a really great selection of content around a learning curriculum, delivering that to kids aged two and six and their families. Um, so what we, we what we started life doing is probably like the simplest thing. You know, we find great content. We started out licensing all of our video content. Um, we make our own games, um, put that in an app, put it in the app store, uh, and then sell that through the app store on a subscription basis. Mm-hmm. And we were really probably one of the first uh, app 
apps to really embrace subscription when Apple kind of started rolling out subscription right. in the App Store in in 2013. So that's our that's our like core direct to consumer model. Still our biggest line of revenue today is doing mm-hmm. that. Uh, what we've begun to do over the last couple of years is really extend that in two ways. Um, one is just taking that subscription model and like moving that out to um, be something that we deliver through partners. So increasingly, um, you can subs- you, rather than subscribe directly to Hopster, you can take out a subscription to a service like Talk Talk in the UK, and you you still get your Hopster content. So you can get Hopster video content through your Talk Talk subscription. Right. Uh, similar deal, similar deal with Vodafone in some markets in, in Scandinavia as well. So it's still keeping that core subscription model. It's just like someone else is taking the payment on our behalf. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing we've begun to do, as a lot of people in this space do, is begun investing more in original content. Mm-hmm. So we started out licensing 100% of our video content. We now make our own originals. Uh, and we're really focused on really trying to find areas where we think um, we can't find good content that's already been made to license. We when It really makes sense for us to either hit some area of our curriculum or some area of learning um, where we don't find good stuff off the shelf, it makes sense for us to go make, you know, make it ourselves. So you're still sort of, or, or increasingly, I guess, a blend of the Netflix and the HBO model in that sense, in terms of your content being part of now the licensing offering that you're bringing elsewhere. Is that? Do you think of yourself? I mean, is that too simple an analogy? Yeah, I mean, I think so. So it is. I think what you, we so we do take some of our originals mm. and license them to third parties. Um, so we have a deal with a partnership with Artman Animation. Right. They uh, so they represent our original content out to, to broadcasters around the world. Um, I think one of the things that I think is important when you think about this space is like the Netflix model is a very uh, is not super replicable, right? Like I mean. You are not, I don't think, going to emerge into like 2025 and find like 10 Netflixes all using the Netflix model. You in, ter- need- in terms of their access to finance or their subscription base? or Wait, Well, I think both sides of that, right? Like having like that global, like you know, hundreds of millions of subscriber base and therefore the ability to access finance against that. Um, and also having that level of brand recognition and being that like first port of call for what, what I would call generalist SVOD, right? Like generally around the world today, if you're going to get a general one-stop shop SVOD service, you're going to get Netflix. Uh, and therefore, I think it makes sense for them to keep a really... They have like a, 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 a what you would call like an almost unique ability to want to keep hold of all their original content and not really distribute that elsewhere. For a player like us, one, like, look at no question, it helps out on the economics to be able to share some of your original content production with other partners who can like make it cheaper, help us do more faster. Right. The other thing, to be honest, from our point of view, is we have um, we've licensed content to, or we've, we've licensed our originals to a, a kids' TV channel in Israel, for example. From our point of view, that's also great marketing. You know, that's helping right. us build our brands. That's helping us build awareness of our platform. Uh, and I think for a player like us, we kind of got to do that because we do not have... Netflix is spending 100 million a quarter or so on user acquisition and marketing. You know, those are not budgets that we have access to. You know, we invest in marketing, we invest in building our brands, but doing that through content and doing that through content distribution deals is a smart way for us to think about growing. And with those distribution deals, are those companies licensing all of your content or are they licensing the service or 
we've, we've done both types of deals. Right. So the way I, um, so we, we license original video right. content. We've done, we've done a few of those deals. Um, but then when we partner with telcos or pay TV operators, mm-hmm. what we are typically doing is partnering for them to redistribute the Hofstra service. Yeah. So, so, so from their perspective, I mean, are, are they, do they feel, I mean, they're getting the value out of the entire Hopster UX user experience and the content or how, how do they, how do they think about this? So, um, so there's a couple of different ways in which we will work with a partner with a telco or pay TV operator. Um, so one example is like, you just take everything we have, right? So you have, right. you allow one of your subscribers full access to the Hopster platform. We call that Hopster All Access. Um, so we do that, for example, with Vodafone in Scandinavia. Um, all of their subscribers to I think their, their basic entertainment pack get full access to Hopster, and that's on their set-top box where we have a TV app. Uh, but they also get full authenticated access to our mobile app. Um, and that really is about... If you're um, if you're a leading mobile operator or a leading pay TV operator in your market, and you want a really kick-ass mobile solution, like you can try and build it yourself. Mm. And like Sky in the UK have, have done that quite successfully, but it's hard. It's hard and it's expensive, and there's an awful lot of things to learn, awful lot of things to discover, and a lot of people don't necessarily want to go through the pain of doing that. Mm. Um, so if you want to find a really like kick-ass leading mobile service which is kind of responsive to what families want, um, then we're a pretty good choice for that. And I think that's how a lot of partners think about that. Right. The other thing, what we sometimes see is we're talking to a partner who maybe doesn't have the capability or hasn't really you know, to, to um, bundle mobile products along with something which has traditionally been a set-top box experience. Right? Right. So maybe you don't have the technology to do that. Maybe you're focused on trying to keep everyone on the set-top box. What we'll do there is say, hey, you can still take the Hopster experience, mm. but take the Hopster experience either as an app provided by us on your set-top box or as a, a or take like the Hopster video and create your own Hopster like, branded area on your set-top box. So there it is kind of video content-led. And from a set-top box perspective... I mean, are you then starting to displace Nickelodeon? Are you starting to displace Disney content? So, are, are you a substitute? Are you an, an an addition from 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 a I suppose from a family and kind of kids content perspective? How do you think about that? Landscape? So, so one of the things that so we is important to understand about us is like we are not like trying to be Disney. We're not trying to you know, Disney Nickelodeon very strong focus on on like that broad entertainment offer. Mm-hmm. You know, we are about helping kids learn through the content that they love. So if you look at our content library, it's about 80%, 90% differentiated from what you would get on a Cartoon Network at Disney and a Viacom. Right. Um, so we have we have, a, we have some big name shows. We have things like Sesame Street. We have things like Ben and Holly, all of which we think are shows which have real learning value. But we also have a lot of smaller independent shows about craft, learning your first words in a foreign language, Understanding physics for preschoolers um, is uh, uh, been, a, been a good show for us recently. So we have a real focus on curating the best play and learning content that you can find in the world, and that is pretty different from where like a Nick Junior or a, a Cartoonita. So d- does that mean, from a subscriber perspective, I mean you are targeting, um, I mean more thoughtful parents what's 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 the most diplomatic way of, of describing yeah, we, we how, have how, a, do you, how do you describe I mean it's it's the upmarket 
um, parent. Is it? So I, don't, so I wouldn't use the word art market, but honestly, I think one of the big learnings that I have from the last like four or five years at Hopster is it's really important to know who you're for and then do things which are awesome for that group. Mm. Uh, and providing that group is big enough, that is, um, that's the path to success. Like, you, we should be okay with not, like, not everyone liking us, provided a sufficiently large number of people love us. Um, so when we think about our market segmentation, we've, we've gone out, we've done research around this. We've, there's a an, an group of parents who we call um, parents who think of childhood as an investment, childhood as an in time to like invest in your kids. Um, those are parents who tend to agree with statements like it's important to raise my child in an ethically and socially conscious way. Mm. Parents who tend to agree that gender neutrality is important in their kids' content. Parents who tend to agree that it's worth paying for premium content. Parents who tend to agree that this is actually an interesting one. Parents who, and parents who tend to agree with the statement that they often wonder if they're doing the right things for their kids, which like not all parents do. Some parents mm. are naturally and intuitively comfortable they're doing the right things. Some parents worry about it a bit more. So we think that childhood as an investment segment is about 30, 35% of the market. Um, those, they tend to be a bit more urban. They tend to be more digitally connected. They are more likely to be Netflix subscribers. They're more likely to be cord cutters as well. Mm. That's really like our core, core segment. So, 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 so they're, they're paying for Hopster's service delivered in any number of potential ways in addition to potentially a Netflix subscription or, or something for sure. similar. similar. For, sure. for sure. And, and is, is that, do you feel that group is, is I mean, you say it's, it's roughly sort of about 30%. Do you feel it's growing? Is it, or is it, is that where it is sort of within a, a societal bound? Uh, yeah, I think that's, I think, I think some of those themes getting more and more important, right? Like, so gender, gender, gender neutrality, I think is becoming more and more important. Um, and uh, um, uh, I do think like concern around, um, um, the experience your 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 child will have on YouTube is becoming more and more prevalent, right? So I think some of the themes that like animate that group are definitely becoming more, are getting are being amplified, are becoming more important. I think that's that's definitely a good thing. So, so I mean, you 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 mentioned YouTube. I mean, are those those are the parents that are actually concerned about what their kids are seeing on YouTube? Is is, is that a, a specific response? That, yeah, I think, I think I think in part. I mean, I think a, one of the things we pick up from our research is a lot of people are driven to Hopster or pick up on Hopster after like what you might call like an oh shit moment on YouTube, right, right? Right. And I think like a lot of parents have had that, like where they come down one morning and the kids pick your kids picked up the iPad and like maybe they started watching something that was okay, and then you've kind of followed the you've kind of followed the recommendation sidebar down or the recommendation playlist down a bit and you've ended up with something that you are really not okay with your kid watching and I think a lot of people kind of reassess or reevaluate YouTube at that point mm -hmm. and I, I, I want to come back to sort of the YouTube point a little later on um, building products that are consumer products that are successful with kids and with parents is something an awful lot of companies have failed at and you haven't how how have you succeeded? So, I want to start by saying, like, I do not feel like we have, like, solved product for preschool. I want to be really clear about that. Like, sat here today, I can think of, like, 20 things in the core hubs of product that I wish were different, I wish were better. 
Um, so I do not want to sit here and say that this is like we've nailed it and we're kind of going home to sit in our hands uh, for the next three years. I think where we have, to the extent we've got things right, I think a few things have been important to us. I think one, it's really helpful that all we do is preschool. Right. And I think you see a lot of times people try and take something that was designed for adults and then like reskin that user experience for a preschooler, right? Which often is like, <laughs> hey. It sounds like you're describing YouTube kids or are you just trying to be diplomatic? I'm like, or there are other services, right? I mean, you know, it's like, but it's like, hey, taking like taking a service for, ad, for, for adults and then like turning the fonts into Comic Sans is like, <laughs> is like that, that does not make for a great experience for for, for kids and if you look at the hopster experience one of the problems we have on hopster is the kids get it and parents don't always get it hmm, because really? it's very visual there's very little text um, it's uh, it's a world for a four year old to explore not something that necessarily makes intuitive sense to a, to a grown up um, so I think and each, even if you I think other people who are yeah, maybe struggle sometimes is even if you try and do something for just for kids Two to twelve is like a huge range, right? Like, like trying to do something cognitively. So much goes on between two and twelve that even if you say you're a kids specialist, actually you you run a real risk of satisfying no one. Um, so I think that's one thing. I think one of the thing, other things which I see that people often get wrong about the product side is like underinvesting in the underlying technology, right? And I think you sometimes because an awful lot of effort goes into make goes into making Hopster like look simple, um, but as a result of that, I think you sometimes see people look at it and be like, okay, well that looks pretty simple. Mm. Like we can get a couple of developers to sort of knock that out in three or four months, and like you can build like a pretty looking visual interface in three to four months, but like some of the challenges that around managing a dynamic user interface across 100 territories around manage, managing like language localization around like managing like a user identity seamlessly across like three or four different billing platforms around like analytics around recommendation are like real material like technical challenges um, and if you don't invest in those things um, you are not going to produce an experience which is like at par with people who have invested in those things. So if like if I look at Hobbs's headcount, we're about fifty percent engineers, right? Um, and I think it's really important to have that engineering spine to the company. I think not everyone always gets that. And of those engineers, do they have kids? And do you feel like that is an important trait for engineers and designers to have when they're building a product like this? Uh, like not everyone has kids. What I will say is we definitely. A bunch of our staff across all disciplines do, and it's definitely like a useful perspective to have in the room. Right. Like, you know, I'm, we certainly don't have a rule which is like, if you don't have kids, you're not in the company. Um, but I think people who have first-hand experience of the challenges of parenting, like that's um, that, that's a definitely an important perspective to have in the room. And from a product perspective, I mean, I remember very, very early on, one of my first memories of, of, of Hopster was your stance on having no advertising ever. No ads ever, yeah. And I mean, is... Is that has that been important? Is it important or as important now as it was? What, what's your how effective has that philosophy been? So I'm going to answer that at two levels. One is the most important level is like from a user level. Um, it's important, right? Like parents, um, our audience segments cares about it, um, right. and also like I'm 
we are we're a pretty mission driven company right i mean like we genuinely get out of bed and we think about like when we and when we go into work we think and we make product decisions we're thinking about hey does this help kids learn through the learn through the stories they love or not um and we don't get particularly excited about advertising i mean it's just like we i tend to like particularly in the preschool space which is our space there's lots of good research that says that a four-year-old can't really distinguish between an ad and the content um struggles with that interruption struggles with their concentration being broken in that way so i I don't think for a a preschool audience i don't think it's the right thing to do Mm. um and i think our audience also responds well to the fact that we are able to make a very clear promise we have no ads ever the other thing I'd say, though, is that if you're starting an early-stage company like ours, like when we first launched, we were a very small team, you you have to pick the thing that you are optimizing for. Mm. You can be optimizing to maximize for subscription and like s- explain to your users why you are worth a subscription, and you can build technology and tools and features that help do that, or you can optimize to shift ads and you can optimize to maximize views and maximize impressions and drive inventory and increase dwell time and all those things as a small team though you've got to pick like you cannot optimize towards both simultaneously because they take you down very different product directions yeah yeah, yeah. and I mean I'm interested by by sort of the parental view on this I mean the the I mean the hopster parent sounds like a real thing um does that mean that when you think about Netflix down the line, there's been a lot of speculation about Netflix at some point introducing ads. Do you think you think parents will recoil at that? So I think I think when Netflix is becoming is Netflix is becoming like a a global general entertainment hub, right? It is becoming like your one stop shop. Right. So we are we we sometimes get called Netflix for kids and like in some way, obviously like Netflix have built an ama- amazing global business and they're wonderfully successful and to be sort of mentioned in that category is great. Um, but we are, I do not see Netflix as a competitor in any meaningful sense, right? Like no I'm, no one ever has cancelled their Netflix subscription and got Hopster or vice versa, I think. Like it's... Really? I think we are like, I think we are, you decide that you want to get Hopster on top of your Netflix subscription but if you're the kind of parent who buys into what we offer, and buys into the breadth of content, buys into games, buys into books, buys into music, buys into learning content, then you understand, then we've then we've, we've been able to explain to you how we're different and how we are mm. valuable on top of Netflix. And if we don't explain that to you, you probably don't get Hopster in the first place whether you have Netflix or not. Um, so uh, I don't see Netflix as being competitive in that way really, really at all. Um, uh, where, um, where would you, I mean, from a product extension perspective I mean if if you had an unlimited balance sheet where would you be going to next would it be more content or would it be more services or functionality given given that you've gone down much more of an interactive route right so we are um, I mean today we are yeah, we're working on improving the Hopster product yeah. every month, every sprint. We've got new stuff coming out. We're working hard on kind of better personalization features at the moment, for example. Um, it, we're also doing original content. We're also doing uh, interactive content development. Um, so that's happening like kind of, I don't want to say BAU, but that's what we're working on right now. If you came to me in tomorrow and said like, hey, here's the, here's the unlimited balance sheet or here's like a, a mega round of investment, 
I think we'd be super invest, interested in accelerating what we do on original content. Right. Like original content's worked really well for us. Um, I'm really pleased with how things like Two Minute Tales, which is like classic fairy tales, retold um, in retold in a modern way, but with also with like with a modern moral to them. Um, really pleased with how those went in 2017. Uh, we got this new show coming up called The Saturday Club, going to launch in. March this year, which is a really cool show about social and emotional literacy, hmm. um, basically helping kids kind of um, think about managing their emotions and understanding different perspectives. Um, doing that with Dog Ears from Northern Ireland. Um, we've got, I'd love to be doing more of those more quickly. Like, original content is a profitable endeavor for us, but it's quite like a balance sheet intensive endeavor. Uh, so, being able to do more of that more quickly would be really cool. Um, one of the things we're also maybe interested in for the longer term is also thinking about how can we go like really deep around areas of learning. Like how can we, um, how can we like offer like a really awesome like coding experience for preschoolers? Right. Mm. So we built this. We built a game called Coding Safari mm. um, uh, at the end of last year, which was an introduction to coding for preschoolers. Um, which went really well. This was a. It was you know we had a lot of engagement with that. Um, uh, from our users also I think brought a lot of new users to Hopster. Um, um how can we go deep on things like that how can we keep adding features and functionality to that and really kind of zoom in on areas of learning that parents care about and really like go deep in creating awesome features around that right and let, let's talk about sort of the, the finance and investment um, side of things of, of Hopster and sort of the kids content market in general I mean from an investor perspective, you know, I think, you know, in general, from a consumer point of view, you talk about the hopster parent and you talk about sort of a lot of the the subtleties that are within that audience group. Um, how do investors or how have investors thought about hopster? I mean, are they thinking about it in as sophisticated a set of terms you know, because do, do people just sort of look at you and go, "Oh, this is a kids' Netflix," or how? And how have you dealt with that that sort of narrative challenge over the last few years? Because the, the point you made, I thought, was an excellent one, but I can see how it would take time to describe right. that to, right, to, right, to, right, to right, the right. investment community. Right, and I look. I think there's always, whenever you're out talking to investors, like um, it's always on you to tell that story, right, and like help people understand that story. And like, I'm sure, like, super awesome. Sometimes, like. People's instant response is like, oh, like an ad tech business, right? Um, uh, and you kind of have to explain explain what you're doing and why you're doing it. Um, I think the things that people have connected with about Hopster are... I think we're pretty... We've tried to be thoughtful about... Where like where the media industry goes, and where the media technology industry goes, and where the kid tech industry goes, um, and I think there are a lot of people who see like a lot of YouTube businesses, or a lot of businesses built on top of YouTube, mm. and can see great sort of top line metrics associated with those, but maybe have concerns about where that business goes for the long term because it's mm. entirely built on YouTube. Um, and are looking for credible business models that have a life off that's not entirely dependent on other people's platforms, whether that platform is, is YouTube or whether it's something else. Um, 
And I think we've been able to tell a story about how we are one of those businesses and where that business and where our business could go over time. Right. So, um, especially as we've begun doing more partner deals, um, I think it's becoming clear how we have a path to like a really meaningful number of subscribers and users, and how you might then be able to build things on top of that as well. And, and I mean, you you mentioned sort of. YouTube there. I mean, where do you think YouTube goes from a kid's content perspective over the next five years? Right. I mean, you've obviously you've got YouTube Kids, which is which is their preschool offering. But there is still a vast amount of content that is that, and, and indeed a lot of new kids IP is coming out of, you know, to the, to the point you made earlier, the popularity of, of YouTube content that's there. Where does, I mean, is, is that phenomenon of kids on YouTube consuming kids content albeit in, in this completely adult ecosystem is that still there in five years time or has it gone away I I actually think maybe it's not that I think I think one of the interesting things you're going to watch for and look I want to be careful on this I don't know if this is a one year thing or a three year thing or a five year thing or a ten year thing but I think this is coming down the track like YouTube kids clearly responds to the fact that there's an awful lot of kids who shouldn't be on YouTube, like YouTube's own terms of service, say this is for 13 and up, uh, on YouTube watching kids' content uh, and being ad- and like as if they were adults and being advertised to as if they were adults and interacting with product features that were built for adults. And like we, by and large, are like not okay with that in other walks of life, right? Like we, like, there's a reason the watershed exists on TV. There's a reason that film ratings exist. Like, you know, you don't by and large have like six year old going six year olds going into eighteen movies or into cinemas showing eighteen rated movies and then wandering around deciding which movie they're gonna pop into. So everyone struggles with how to regulate global tech platforms because it's difficult. Uh, and like candidly, and I want to be fair to the guys at YouTube here, like they struggle with how to how to manage this dynamic as well. Like it's not easy and it's not obvious. But I think collectively over the next 10 years, are we going to be in a place where we have a whole bunch of kids' content on a platform designed and built for adults um, and a whole bunch of kids consuming that content? I think the answer is no. I think through a combination of regulation and through a combination of like self-regulation by YouTube and a combination of advertiser pressure, I think a lot of the kids' content ends up... Either a lot of the kids' content comes off YouTube or a lot of the monetization channels for that content on YouTube get shut down in a way that makes it way less attractive for a content creator making stuff for kids to be on YouTube main. Yeah. So then what happens with that? Well, I don't, honestly, I don't know, but one of the things that you could see is some of that move over into YouTube Kids. YouTube Kids is a less strong platform, I think, for monetization. You know, I think that's fairly clear. You know, you have... You know, because the tracking's not there, because you have less ad inventory. So I think we all know monetization on YouTube is pretty challenging in the, in the best of times. Monetization on YouTube kids is going to be a bucket load more challenging for all sorts of reasons. I think you're always going to have fewer views on YouTube kids as well. So I think one of the things that I find interesting over the next 10 years is you've got this YouTube, which is this massive place for consumption for kids' content at the moment. And I think that is... I think that's going to change. I do think that a lot of that viewing moves to other digital platforms over the next 10 years. 
Um, so that, 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 by definition, leads to more fragmentation, presumably in the marketplace. So does that, I mean, that shifts between AVOD and, and SVOD, so sort of advertising video, funded video, and, and subscription video? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think... So, but does that, does that then mean that you end up with content exclusives on platform, and once again, it comes back to the whole kind of content is king concept? Uh, so, look, I think if you th- if you buy that fundamental thesis that you're going to see like a significant reduction in kids' content and content consumption on YouTube, like who benefits from that? Well, I think um, Netflix benefit from that. I think other SVOD platforms, Amazon Prime, benefit from that. Clearly, Disney going to be a beneficiary of that. Uh, platforms like us benefit from that. Mm. Um, uh, all of those platforms, by the way, also benefiting from the other big story, which is just the ongoing decline of linear TV. Like, you know, right. If you look at the latest Barb data, kids TV viewing in the UK down nearly 50% over the last seven years. I mean, that's an awful lot of awful lot of, of you know, time that kids would have spent watching a linear TV going into digital. Mm-hmm. So I think you end up with a lot of the viewing, either from YouTube or from TV, going onto new digital entrants. Clearly, it's going to fragment somewhat because you have, for example, um, uh, Disney coming into the market with their service. Uh, looks like uh, Turner, Warner Media will go for something similar. Um, so you will you will have a couple of major new entrants coming in to try and replicate Netflix. I suppose within that kind of big media landscape, from a kid's perspective, what does someone like a Nickelodeon do? I mean, your 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 former um, place of place of employ. I mean. It doesn't seem as if they have got the platform strategy that Disney has or Turner potentially has. I mean, they have they have gone through their entire sort of Game of Thrones period for the last two or three years, uh, but they're still one of the biggest kids' names in the world from an IP and brand perspective. Where 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 do you see their future? Right, I think uh, super interesting. Like, I think one of the things which, but like, you think big picture, one of the things that I think digital really rewards is what I talked about before, which is like clarity about what you stand for and what job you're going to be hired for by a user. Um, and what you could do in the channel world is you could kind of get away with being in a place where you had, in the preschool space, you had Disney Junior, Cartoonito, and Nick Junior as channels all kind of playing in the same space, kind of like broad-based entertainment, Big franchise led, a little bit of a learning skew on some properties, like plus or minus three, four percent. In a digital world, it seems very unlikely that you continue to have like three services all like operating in exact that space, right? So you gotta have you have a, you either aggregate like a critical mass of content for like a wider group, which is the path that Disney seems to be on, or you go deep around one area, uh, which is the path we're on. You know, we're deep around around very specifically around um, helping kids learn through the stories they love. That is a decision I think Nickelodeon is going to need to make. Mm. Um, and I don't know where they go with that. Do they get, you know, they've got Noggin, which I think is, um, feels like it's going to try and go in a more specialized direction. Maybe try and focus a bit more on education and learning. Um, maybe the CBS deal happens and they kind of roll up with CBS All Access and try and create a broader play. Go take the Disney path. Um, and that's a challenge they, they're going to have to work through. But, um, I think it certainly doesn't stay still, right? Or if it does stay still, let bad things will happen. Mm. And how do you, like, when you look at Disney's 
strategy of rolling out what I think they're they're calling Disney Plus at least that's the name for it at the moment. <coughs> how how do you evaluate their chances of su- their chances of success? I mean, if you go back to your, your analyst days, right? Um, I mean, it's it's a big big move fundamentally going up against a Netflix. Um, I think it's interesting when you look at sort of kids' content in the context of all this. Kids' content is table stakes for any of these big subscription platforms. Um, Disney clearly have a lot of that, but they don't have a lot of other content. How do you you think Disney plays that? So, I... So, like... I gotta answer that by saying, like, let me tell you the service I would love to see them try. <laughs> right. I do not know if they're gonna go down this dead answer at all. I have no special insight. I think one of the it goes back to this idea of being a differentiator, being of doing something real really knowing who your audience is and creating products as well as content. I think the product side is important here, that does something kick ass for your audience. Now, do Disney have an audience? Yeah. Disney have an audience like hell like we we do research we meet families who go like yeah we're a Disney family like I've heard even still today I've heard families absolutely heard families describe themselves as Disney families so do they have an audience do they have love do they have brand recognition and how so what do you then do with that as a product well like one of the things I would love to see them do is like think broadly about the role of what an SVOD service could be and I think it's interesting that they have chosen to call the service Disney Plus they haven't gone for the Disney Go. They haven't gone for like Disney Play. They haven't gone for any of that interesting branding. And I wonder, and again, I don't know, but I wonder if that signals that actually what they are trying to do is think about how they go really deep with people who would describe themselves as Disney families. And like, what could that look like? Well, they have, think about the assets that Disney have. Yes, they have great content, they have great brands, but they've built franchises around those brands. You can you can go to Disney World. You can go pretty deep in Pirates of the Caribbean, in Pirates of the Caribbean world. You can, you will shortly be able to go to the Star Wars world. Um, they have a massive consumer products business. They have their own store properties. Like, could you imagine Disney Plus being something where they automatically they automatically detect that you're like a massive fan of a Disney property, uh, and then as a Disney family, you find that in your like profile section in the Disney Plus app you've just been like incentivized or you've just been rewarded for being a super fan with money off in further on the consumer product side that you can go into the Disney store and then they will know that you're a massive that you're a huge fan of, of you know, that particular Disney show and get money off you know, get money off your Paw Patrol get money, get free Paw Patrol gifts or can they will they be able, will they are you going to check in with your Disney Plus ID at a Disney park uh, and that's going to feed into their recommendation in a way that kind of joins up their physical and digital experience. I, I, have, I would love to see them kind of thinking about how they create something awesome around that. Doesn't that take them into direct competition with certainly Amazon and, and, and probably Google and probably Facebook, who are all fundamentally long-term going for this same sort of home dominance in some shape or form? So I don't know if Disney are going to be in devices, right? Like, I mean, that seems to me unlikely. Like, it's but 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 how? But I mean, there's not going to be that many sort of family account concepts that parents are willing to sign into, presumably. Yeah, I mean, I think that's probably true. But like, I also think like 
like we now know that that number is like more than one right like most people's number of accounts is a pretty plural mm-hmm. like and I think like we've found like if you look at like in a very small way with Hopster like you can get Hopster on Amazon channels and you can log into the Hopster app using your Amazon channel subscription and I think like it for us it's you know, we want to go where our users are and some of our users are on Amazon from Amazon's point of view you know Amazon are not in the business right now of creating um, apps that help kids learn through the stories they love you know, there's a, you know, we do something that they don't do. Um, so, and I think Disney will be in the same place. Like, I do would not expect to see, like, the Amazon theme parks popping out anytime soon, and I would not expect that theme park to be very successful when it launched. I, yeah, I don't think many people were expecting Jeff Bezos to go and, and, and buy a, a retail chain, though, either. Um, sure, I mean, like, Amazon is particularly, like, <laughs> you know, like, you're, um, you're, uh, uh, particularly interesting in the scope of their global ambitions, um, and yeah, I mean, like to be clear, like can you imagine Amazon is kind of a unique beast in that they are a frenemy to almost everyone, right? Like they're, you, I'm sure Disney ship a load of merch through Amazon. Uh, I'm equally sure that some of what Amazon do on Amazon Video, Amazon Prime Video in their kids section, like <clears throat> you know, competes fairly head on with what Disney will do in SVOD. Mm. And when, when but I think I do think people are getting more comfortable, like. People like people are very aware of those tensions, and some of those latent tensions can stay for a very long time without breaking out into like, like, like full blown warfare. Right, and I mean, it, we sort of talked about a lot of the big names across the the, the kids media landscape, um, but when you think of, of everybody else, you know, how do you think about about their strategy for kids content and kids subscription service? So, you have uh, Sony Pictures, which invested in Hopster uh, over the last. Uh, year or so, I, I mean, are now all of these companies being faced with the challenge of building their own platform or essentially going into the content licensing model, or how is how is everyone else that isn't a Disney um, or isn't a, a, a Warner vehicle thinking about about this landscape? So, um, look, I mean, I mean, like the trite answer to that would be like. Um, in some cases, by becoming like a Disney or a Warner, right? Which is the answer that Fox came up with, um, that you're going to go merge with Disney. Um, look, I think digital is digital is forcing every player in the media space to think hard about what they do, who their audience is, and where they want to find their audience, and if they can put together like the right set of products and content to like connect with that audience in a way that's going to make sense in five years time and 10 years time and 15 years time. Um, I do think like the answer to that are gonna be, the answers to that will be plural though, right? Like I don't think that, um, I don't think that like Discovery's answer to that question will be a different answer to um, Disney's question. And like, you know, like not everyone is gonna jump on this like, hey, let's create some, like let's take everything that we do and like put it all together. Uh, into one big like meta general VOD offer, right? Like, and that's that's right. Like, you know, what if you are Discovery, you are going to have a different take on how you meet, how you where you want to meet your audiences um, than Disney would do. Mm. And what I mean, if you think about you know predictions for the next one to two years in the kids digital media space. What do you think are, are are the surprises that lurk on the horizon for the next couple of years? Um, 
I've been banging this drum for a long time, um, but I think content creation gets shaken up big time. Hey, explain that. So, let 50,000 foot view of kids over the last like 10 years. I think mean, you've seen the distribution patterns in kids get like chewed up completely, right? You've seen like on demand get big, you've seen TV fall off a cliff, you've seen Amazon enter, you've seen uh, Netflix enter. Yeah, so that the whole pattern of how kids, where kids find content, how they consume it, what um, has changed a lot. The thing, including the devices, what has changed to a much lesser extent so far has been how content gets made. Um, so if you look at the linear channels, they're still commissioning 52 episodes of, yeah, 52, 11, 52 11s, uh, 52 11 minute episodes. Interestingly, if you look at how Netflix and Amazon are commissioning, they are by and large commissioning in, in a similar style. They're not as driven by episode length, but they're still commissioning large budgets, big production times, you know, couple of years to get it made. Mm. Um, and then if you look at what's done well on YouTube, by and large, it's either been content that got made for TV, re-edited, cut up, and made available via YouTube, or it's been very low, relatively low budget, high volume, um, uh, um, short form that you can kind of feed the algorithm with because that's what the algorithm responds to well. So things like Blippi, for example, have, um, I think, really fit that model. Um, you have, but as a result of that, I think you haven't seen a lot of, like, franchises emerge off of YouTube. Like, it's quite difficult to think of, especially in the preschool space, brands that got really big on YouTube that got from that got built from scratch on YouTube. I think Blippi is probably an example. You could maybe think about something like Little Baby Bum, but, you know, it's, you know Little Baby Bum is not a Paw Patrol. It's not, although it was just acquired by a Rain-backed, um, Rain Investment Bank-backed, um, vehicle recently for not an insignificant amount. So not, there's, there's perception of value there. Right, not not an insignificant amount, but I think if you were to like compare that to if you think that Little Baby Bum is one of the biggest properties on YouTube, like benchmark like I don't know what it got acquired for, but like, you know, it got acquired in like a private market transaction by a you know a very well funded startup, but a, you know, a startup nonetheless, you compare that to the value you'd assign to a comparable property on TV, like a Pepper or a Paw Patrol. Um, I think fairly clearly you built more value in the Pepper or the Paw Patrol than you built in uh, in something like Little Baby Bum. Um, and I think what you're going to see over the next four or five years is you're going to see this original content creation getting shaken up in the sense that I think you'll see as more platforms start to grow up who are interested in investing in kids' content... Um, but free from the requirement to do like TV type broadcasting, like TV type commissioning, um, then you see a whole new source of, of cash opening up for investing in quality kids content. Um, so when I think about what we do, you know, we don't care about fifty-two minutes, we don't or fifty-two episodes. You don't care about eleven-minute episodes. We're very happy to do short runs uh, of short-form content, get it on Hopster quickly, uh, see what's working, and then. Uh, and then do more of what's working. Take feedback, look at data, and then do more of what works. So we're trying to kind of apply a kind of digital mindset to approach to approaching uh, to approaching high quality premium content creation. Uh, and I think there's more and more people in the market who are interested in looking at doing that. I thought it's interesting to hear you hear um, uh, Katzenberg 
uh, talking about where he's going with what used to be called New TV and I think is now going to be called Quibi. This is this the very small sort of micro-episode type approach. Right, right. Mm. Um, but they are, they are investing big cash mm. in building... Uh, in short form content, which they never expect to appear up on TV, you know, they exp- and which yeah. I don't think they expect to appear significantly on YouTube. They want to see that content being distributed on their own platforms and other people, uh, but with a real ambition to build major content franchises um, on digital only platforms in ways which are native to those digital platforms. And, and do, do you feel the same way with Hopster content, with with your originals as well? You're looking for those franchises. Yeah, for sure. Like I, abs- I absolutely think something like Saturday Club is a sh- is something that we can build out over the long term. But rather than doing what you used to have to do, which I think is like, I genuinely think in ten years' times, media executives will like, or you know, like people in the kids space will like look back at this and be like, and laugh at it. In like two thousand ten, you wanted to make a kids TV show made. You like had a great idea. You wrote up your idea in a treatment. You met a production company. Production company liked up, liked it. That production company then told you that well, that needs to be you know for a broadcast. Look at it. That's got to be uh, fifty-two episodes. That's going to cost about three and a half million dollars to make. You're like, wow, three and a half million dollars. And then you got that plan, and you went around Cartoon Digital, and you went around MIP TV, and like after twelve months, like maybe the BBC were in for, were in for it, and that's great. But they're in for it for like twenty percent, and then like. Two years later, like maybe you got two or three other people interested, and like maybe after, like if you were lucky, maybe after like two and a half years, you had this thing funded. Then it took a year to make. So between you having your idea and getting something on screen, it'd probably taken three years. Then what everyone would tell you is, okay, we got to be on TV for a year. Look at the ratings data, see how that's doing. So four years after you had your idea, you may, if you are lucky, you maybe had something made and on TV and some idea of how it was performing. And the idea that like creativity takes place in like a four year iteration and feedback cycle is I just think so inconsistent with how most of the digitally enabled world is moving. And I think what you're beginning to see with experimentation and new platforms around kids content creation are people thinking about interesting ways to like shortcut that cycle, get more creativity out there faster, learn quicker and still keep the quality up. And I think that is a trend which is coming on the track. And that is a fascinating way to wrap up uh, this interview. Um, I think sort of you presented an intriguing bridge between sort of the TV DNA and digital DNA of the kids' media space and how those things are meeting together. Um, Nick, CEO, Hopster, uh, the global play and learning platform uh, for preschool. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you.